When I mentioned that I'm teaching oral rhetoric this semester to our local bank manager, his response was immediate and enthusiastic. That, he said, is one of the most important things you can teach your students. This is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz, and you're listening to the After Dinner Scholar from Wyoming Catholic College. In almost every walk of life and vocation, the ability to express yourself orally with clarity, precision, and persuasiveness is vital. That's obvious for teachers, salespeople, politicians, lawyers, but consider the engineers, managers, administrators, builders, doctors, at-home moms, and, well, you name it. We all make presentations and proposals to individuals and to groups. This semester, Dr. Virginia Arbery and I each have two sections of sophomores for Trivium 202, Oral Rhetoric. The way we teach oral rhetoric here at Wyoming Catholic College has in some sense three parts. It's some philosophy, Mm -hmm. some examples, lots of practice. Mm -hmm. And let's begin with philosophy. Plato's Socrates has a rather low view of rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Um, Why is that? And has that contrast with Aristotle's view? Ah, good. It's a surprise. There's several Platonic dialogues in which we recognize Socrates' displeasure with rhetoric. He sees it as a fake uh, mode of conversation, one that flatters. Uh, He talks about it as analogous to cosmetics, which makes you look good, though your body can be in terrible shape. And his concern is that speech that has no end, no proper end, can can simply serve the speaker to uh, use his skills to manipulate an audience. And he sees this, and this is partly the political background for his objection to rhetoric. Um, He sees damaging speech as particularly harmful in a democracy because the democracy is free and is able to make its choices through deliberation of the body politic. So his particular animus, and it's very, it's very strong, is against those uh, rhetoricians from the outside, like Gorgias, uh, as Gorgias was from Sicily, who come in and and sell their their fake art to young men, shaping them to be self promoters. Think of a kind of advertising marketing mentality that uh, governs how we see our would-be politicians today, that same kind of uh, selling your goods, not because you're interested in shaping the regime towards proper end, which should be virtue and moderation, but because you want positions of reputation and power and influence in the city. And then there's also this claim that Socrates finds totally groundless, which is that the rhetorician can talk about anything and make an argument about anything better than the people who actually do the thing that's being talked about. So better than the physician, better than the shipbuilder, better than the architect, because you know how to sell taking medicine or to sell a particular kind of uh, shipbuilding and that kind of thing. 
So he objects to that claim as well. He's particularly concerned about using language, which should lead one to, to the better opinion or to the opinion of the wise man, but using it instead for practical success. And of course, this is his fundamental argument through so many dialogues against what's happened to, to the Athenian body politic. Socrates has a respondent, however, in Aristotle, um, Plato's student, who finds, in fact, that there's a, there is a way to anchor rhetoric to that which is true or closer to the truth. And in the beginning of his work, The Rhetoric, he makes the claim that rhetoric is the counterpart to dialectic. So whereas Socrates thinks that the conversation that results between one or two people to get at through questioning what the better opinion is, that kind of uh, discipline of a a truth-focused conversation can be approximated in rhetoric. He uses a particular metaphor to convey this insight of his. He says, rhetoric, he says, is like a chorus that goes across the stage from the strophe. So there's the strophe and the anastrophe in a, in a Greek tragedy. And so if dialectic is going across the stage one way, rhetoric is going across the stage the other way. But they're on the same stage. They're both interested in unveiling uh, the truth of the action. And so he, his part, takes up the, the critique of Plato's Socrates, but refines it in such a way that those who practice, as he puts it, the speech arts, uh, who just work at manipulation or the emotional level of the speech, have to be tethered to the truthful part of the speech, the logos. He privileges logos over pathos. Whereas, again, in the deliberative assembly or in the courtroom, uh, making the audience crazy with patriotic fury or making the jury weeping over the predicament of the defendant. That kind of thing is avoided for the sake of the truth. And Aristotle puts it pretty simply. He says, rhetoric is the discipline of seeing things well, seeing things. So language in the service of seeing things well. Yes, so that's the philosophic background. And the students read Plato and they read Aristotle. And we try to keep reminding them that their obligation is to let rhetoric be the counterpart to dialectic. Now, on the example side, we read political speeches. Mm-hmm. Uh, we read Patrick Henry, the Federalist, some some of the Federalist papers, mm-hmm. George Washington, mm-hmm. uh, Abraham Lincoln, Winston mm-hmm. Churchill. Mm-hmm. Um, why are those the examples rather than other examples? I mean, we could read sermons, for example. We could, yes. Well, we have emphasized the political, haven't we, Jim? And because... It is the realm of making a decision that will lead to an action for the public good that we emphasize in our approach to rhetoric. So unlike a public speaking course at a regular state school, we fashion this course as political rhetoric and the common good. So how can we achieve 
through an advisory speech, that is to say, in a deliberative assembly? How can we fashion a good policy that will move the regime in the right direction? So, all right, you mentioned Churchill, unbelievably important, how he responds to the sham of an agreement with Nazi Germany, the Munich Agreement. Unbelievable how he calls Neville Chamberlain to task for that agreement, how he calls France to task, what he says about uh, the responsibility of the House of Commons, what England should do now. If Churchill hadn't seen the error of those who had been persuaded to be pacifistic in the face of the most significant tyranny of all time, if he hadn't responded pugilistically to, to, to these kind of missteps, England would have never been saved. Europe would have never been saved. America could have been damaged, you see. So it's at these crucial moments where, where the students are exposed to great rhetoric, which repositions a regime back to its proper end. Tomorrow they're reading Cicero's response to the Catalinarian conspiracy. And here again is, is another kind of bad player right, who can completely destroy a regime that is Rome. And Cicero has to be so careful, and, and this is a part of the nuancing of good rhetoric, he has to be so careful not to just condemn the Senate for letting Catiline get as far as he did, but, it, but he has to couch things in such a way that he himself is also responsible for the mistake of Catiline, right? He himself could have done something about it. The whole republic is at stake. And it's that kind of persuasion where the audience isn't just the other, but you become part of the audience, right? That, that can make a very bad situation into an opportunity for saving the republic. Oh, and then they read Lincoln, they read all these other figures who may not might not have necessarily had power, but who had real influence, such as Solzhenitsyn later. Reading Alexander Solzhenitsyn is so timely, especially with the Russian-Ukraine conflict. They have to see that there are differences in, in the kinds of oppression that, that regimes uh, um, can can achieve that the kind of oppression that silences speech. It's one thing to let anything be said, but we live in a regime right now where we 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 are experiencing exactly though we're not under communism what Solzhenitsyn experienced, which is cancel culture. Right? You have to pre-determine what you can say and in such a way that you're allowed to say it, or you'll get pummeled on the stage, as the recent judge at Stanford did. We have to be always censoring ourselves so we don't have a regime which, technically speaking, is repressive. So Solzhenitsyn teaches us in one of his great speeches that they read that we can't live by lies and, and that we have to preserve language and the ability of the body politic to say the truth to things. I asked the students what they noticed about Churchill's response to the Munich agreement. Yes. And what, what you know, how is that, how is that different from the political <laughs> rhetoric we hear today? Yeah. And, and they immediately said, well, he's respectful toward the people who he disagrees with. Indeed. He is very Indeed. respectful toward mm -hmm. Neville Chamberlain, although yes. you get the impression that he'd want to hit him with a cricket bat. <laughs>
<laughs> you know, he'll say, well, you were so strong in your wrong opinion. You have to be respected for being so strong in your wrong opinion. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and now and for, we're paying for it. <laughs> and for deeply desiring peace. Yes, for desiring peace. Yeah. Yes, he makes the best of a bad situation, doesn't he? <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, the students practice as well. Tell us about the experience of student speeches. Oh, it's painful at first. <laughs> I would say we, we have this going for us. To begin with, they can recite one of the many poems they have to memorize as students in the humanities curriculum. And so they get a kind of baseline through that experience of how they do saying the poem individually in front of other people rather than in a group uh, standing there. You know, just being embodied and speaking is a different experience for some of them. And then we move through the Greek exercises, which were rhetorically, which were the school for all rhetors. They begin with a narrative, right? And then they go on to a description of, of something that is very evocative, sensually. Um, they move on to a, a speech of praise, an encomium, then an invective, and so on. Eventually, they're giving an advisory speech, a policy speech, not as good as Churchill's, but one, one that has that same kind of purpose, right? Moving a deliberative body. So those small exercises, one by one, are developed through invention. They have to really think through how the argument they want to make is going to capture the nature of the audience to whom they're speaking, how they're going to use certain images and phrases and diction to achieve the effect. And then they have to really think about how their gestures, their facial expressions, their hands, their feet, their movement, all of it adds to making the point stronger. Pacing is important, how fast they speak, how slow. There are just so many elements of delivery over and above content. Partly, as Aristotle says, um, when you have a weaker argument, the stronger the character of the speaker, the more persuasively important that character is. And so I really try to tell them that their ethos is half of the argument. <laughs> They're known as a certain student, a certain person on the outdoor trips or in the classroom, but they take on a kind of persona in front of the room when they give a speech. And that ethos counts for sometimes as much as their logos in, in their delivery. In my sections, the women who dress nicely. Mm -hmm. Not only does it have a different effect on the audience, mm -hmm. it clearly has a different effect on them. You are correct. Mm -hmm. There was a young man yesterday who had given pretty lackluster speeches until yesterday. He dressed up in a suit, polished his shoes, did his hair, and made a considerable difference in, in his self-regard, in the way that he saw himself. Yes. And I think just... Them, the fact that they're mm -hmm. up in front, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, you can see the nervousness. You can see it in their eyes. Yeah. You can see it in, in their in their hands and the little <laughs> gestures. And that by this time in the semester, most of that has worn off. Yes, they're getting better. Yeah. I'm always amazed that they get better. <laughs> <laughs> 
course, we give them very detailed critiques and we allow their classmates to critique them too. I said the other day in class, um, this is not a class where you have to be very kind to each other. Kindness here means being a good critic of one another. Yeah. And that's changed too. A couple of weeks ago, one of the students yes. commented, wow, we're really getting real feedback now. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. It's not just sort of, yeah. oh, that was nice because I'm your friend. But <laughs> right. you didn't do this. You did this. You could have done this differently. Mm -hmm. And it's very helpful. Because they have a kind of repertoire now where they've seen three or four speeches and they're beginning to see what the default position is of the student, where they're weak, where they're strong, how they can improve. Interesting. I have one young woman who's, I think, you know, I told her she should apply to the, the Globe Theater and get in on a, a Shakespearean company because she is incredibly gathered and her diction and so forth. And then I said, in a case like that, you have to learn to be natural as well as high-toned. There are some speeches in which that high tone won't work at all, mm -hmm. and you're going to have to learn to be natural. So everybody can learn something, even the ones who seem perfect. <laughs> you know? Well, and of course, it all pays out when we see them do their senior orations. These oh, are sophomores. Yes. And, uh, when they do their senior orations, it's just quite wonderful. And weren't they good this year? Oh, yeah. I was amazed how good they were. I was patting myself on the back, then I realized it's, it wasn't about you, Virginia. It was this curriculum <laughs> and the fact that they've had not just the rhetoric class, but they've been trained to think. They know how to think and they have good imaginations and they're confident. Yes, it was, it was thrilling to see the senior orations. I'm always saddened to hear someone say disparagingly, well, it's all just semantics. Just semantics? God spoke the world and everything into being. Just semantics? Jesus is the eternal word. Just semantics? Faith comes from hearing, wrote St. Paul in Romans 10, and hearing from the word of God. Just semantics? We are the animals who have the divine gift of speech. Semantics are everything. Words are all we have, and words can change individual lives, families, communities, churches, nations, indeed the world. Oral rhetoric is part of our commitment to teach our students to use words well and to go out and change the world. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.